So deep within each of us is, is, is a longing for control. I, I doubt there's anyone in this room that doesn't think that the world, or at least their life, would be a better place, sometimes at least, if they were a little bit, if they had a little bit more control. Uh, you ever complain? You ever get anxious? You ever worry? You ever get frustrated? You ever been afraid? All of these emotions come because we're not in control and we wish we were. Think about it. If you were in control, you would never complain because instead of complaining, you just fix it. If you were in control, you'd have nothing to worry about because you'd have more money than you could know what to do with. If you were in control, you wouldn't be anxious because you'd know the future. If you were in control, you'd have nothing to be afraid of because you wouldn't let anything bad happen to yourself or to anyone that you love. We long to be in control and we experience these emotions when, when we realize we're not and, and we're not happy with it. You and I, not only do we long to be in control, another way we see it is, is we don't really like being told no, right? I, I mean, the truth is, at least with kids, and, and I know probably with me too, sometimes we don't even really want something until we're, we're told no, and then all of a sudden it becomes more important to us. We, we don't like being told no. We don't like rules. We don't like restrictions. We don't like this idea that someone else is in control of our lives. Well, tonight we're going to study a story in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 5. And, uh, and in this story, this story is about who is in control and how people respond when they find out that it's not them. So this story, it's about who is in control and how different people respond in different ways when they find out that it's not them. This is a, it's a fascinating story. It's, it's an amazing story. Mark chapter 5, uh, it's, it, it's a very detailed story, a long story, and uh, I think it's because there's so much Mark wants us to learn from it. Jesus and his disciples have just come through a massive storm. Jesus calms the storm in Mark chapter 4, and his disciples grow afraid when they realize that they've been in a boat with God himself. They come to the shore, they get out of the boat, Jesus steps onto the shore, and immediately he's greeted by a demon-possessed man wandering around in the tombs at night. Mark gives us a little background about this guy in verses 3 and 4. He says, this man lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. First, I want you to consider this situation from the townspeople's perspective. Here, the townspeople recognize this man who had given himself over to evil, and they want to come and help him. They want to come and fix him. They want to restrain the evil that he is allowing to, 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 to empower him. And so they come, and they try, with using their own strength, to, to fix him, to, to restrain the evil inside of him. When their own strength doesn't work, they try to use chains, and they try to use shackles, and they're doing everything they can to keep the evil inside this man from coming out, from being exercised. But they can't. 
As hard as they try to fix this man, as hard as they try to restrain him, they can't. He breaks every chain. He breaks the shackles. No one is able to subdue him. I want you to consider how similar our culture is to the townspeople. Like them, our culture is constantly trying to restrain evil and broken things with external means. When we have a shooting, we run to gun laws. When we have a terrorist attack, we run to tighter security. When we get sick, we run to a doctor. When we, uh, when, when we get anxious, we run to a psychiatrist. When we have relational problems, we run to a counselor. There's a, a, a fix-it-yourself or a do-it-yourself book or a self-help book for almost every problem you could ever imagine going through. And still, we find ourselves just as broken and troubled as ever, right? This passage, one of the things it comes to teach us is that you cannot fix a spiritual problem with an external solution. This man has a spiritual problem. He's a demon inside him that's by definition spiritual. And they're trying to fix it with chains. Those are physical. Those are external. And and you cannot fix a spiritual problem with external means. And because we live in a culture that that has gotten rid of God, we we live in a culture that that tries to fix everything by external means, right? And, and, And Paul comes to tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 that that there there are spiritual forces that that exceed anything that can be fixed with physical or uh, external restraints. He says in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle's not against flesh and blood, and it's not going to be defeated by external means. Evil cannot be restrained by rules. Uh, uh, The brokenness in our lives can't be fixed by mere medicine, and death will never be defeated by technology. There are broken things in this world that you and I will simply not be able to fix on our own. This is the painful truth. It's the painful truth that these townspeople realized. So how did they respond? How did the townspeople respond when they realized there are broken things that they are not able to fix? When they realized they were not in control of this situation? Well, unable to accept their lack of control, the townspeople removed this man to a place where they won't have to see him and won't have to be reminded of their lack of control. That's why Jesus found them wandering among the tombs on the outskirts of town on a mountainside. I want you to consider how our culture tries to do the exact same thing with the things that we can't control. We can't slow down the aging process, so we take the aging and we put them together out of sight and out of mind. We can't stop death, so we take the dead and we dress them up like they're still alive and make them look as good as possible, and then we remove them out of sight and out of mind. Our culture cannot stand being confronted with things that it cannot control, and so we do everything we can to put it out of sight, out of mind, to distract ourselves from it, Either we learn to control it, or we don't think about it. Of course, 
That's not just our culture, right? That's us. That's you and me, right? We, what, do, what do we do when we encounter brokenness we can't fix? What do we do when we realize we're not in control? We run to food. We run to entertainment. We run to relationships or alcohol or work in order to, to distract ourselves from the things that we can't control. You and I are typically doing one of two things. We're fighting for control or we're distracting ourselves from the fact that we don't have it. That's why we cover our sins, we hide our weaknesses, we bury our brokenness. Now I want you to consider this story from this man's perspective. Here was a man who could not be constrained. Evil had come and made this man very strong. It had come and offered him freedom. Evil had come to this man and it said, if you will will open yourself up to me, I will make you strong. No one will be able to tell you what to do anymore. No one will be able to hold you back. No one will be able to restrain you. If you will simply give yourself over to me, I will give you the freedom that you long for. So this man did. He, he gave himself over to evil and he became strong. Stronger than every single person in the entire town. Stronger than chains. Stronger than shackles. But listen to what Mark says this man did with all of his great might. Look at verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, this man was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This verse comes to teach us something very profound. It comes to show us the slavery of independence. The slavery of independence. Evil has come and offered this man freedom, but the the moment he listened, the moment he took a bite, he realized it wasn't freedom that evil offered, but slavery. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. This is crazy, right? Our culture, sin, evil, others. What, what, what is sin? What is its claim to fame? Its claim is freedom. Sin says rules are bondage. Laws are slavery. Sin comes and says, I'm the best because I let you do whatever you want. I don't even tell you what to do. I tell you do what you want to do. I'm the definition of freedom. Sin comes and it says, every rule that that tells you not to do me, that's slavery. I'm freedom because I always say yes to everything. And Jesus says, it's a lie. Sin isn't freedom, it's slavery. You see, the thing about evil is it doesn't have the power that it claims to have. You see, sin and evil may offer you the ability to do whatever you want. It can offer you the freedom to do what you want, but it cannot offer you freedom from the consequences of doing whatever you want. It offers freedom from rules but it cannot offer freedom from consequences. Sin can come to you and say, do whatever you want. The shackles of rules, I'm removing them all. It's all all you. You're free. But as soon as you do it, sin 
backs off and leaves you with the consequences. It's like a waitress coming up to your table with a menu and, 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 and you open it up and you only got five bucks on you, but she's like, ah, oh, look at this great food. You can have whatever you want. You know, anything you order, they'll make it in the kitchen. Yeah, you can. You can order whatever you want on the menu. You're free. But when it's over, you have to pay for it. It's like some of those restaurants that don't put the prices there, right? Those are the worst. Or tell you what's even worse. I, I don't want to go on a rant, but uh, like, like, like the whole medical industry kills me because every procedure they want me to get, I'm like, okay, do I need it? They're like, yeah. I was like, what's it cost? They won't tell you what it, they never tell you what it costs until later. And then you're like, you get bills from the emergency room and then bills from the x-ray people and then bills from, and you're like, wait a minute. Like, I, I thought uh, you, they don't all work together, I guess. So uh, that's just, that's just, <laughs> some, one person to send me one bill, I know, but, but you get them all different times. So it, that's what sin does. It, it leaves you to pay. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which lets you do whatever you want but leads to death, or of obedience that leads to righteousness. If you want to see an example of this, all you got to do is go back to the garden. There Satan offered Eve freedom. Freedom from God's rules, freedom to make her own decisions, freedom to control her own destiny, freedom to decide for herself what's right and what's wrong and what fruit looks good and what fruit doesn't. But the moment she took the forbidden fruit, freedom isn't what she found, is it? She didn't find freedom, she found slavery. She didn't find life, she found death. She didn't find happiness, she found shame and guilt and misery. And all of a sudden, she realized she was naked, and she got cast out of the garden where now thorns and thistles grew up to cut her body. And if she was ever going to have children, she would find herself crying out in agony. That's what sin does. Sin may offer freedom, but it gives us slavery. Some of you have experienced a little bit of the devastating power of sin. Some of you have felt the weight of guilt and shame in your life. Some of you have tasted the bitterness of regret. You've done things that you couldn't take back. You've broken things you couldn't fix. A momentary pleasure has impacted the rest of your life. Some of you have tasted that. Some of you know that. Some of you know and have felt the darkness of despair. When you hear about this man wandering around alone, hopeless, broken, enslaved, cutting himself with stones and crying out, some of you can relate to that. Some of you have felt these feelings before. Well, if you feel like you can relate to this man at all, I want to to tell you that the story comes to offer you some good news. In Psalm 102, verse 18 through 20, it says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created, that's us, 
a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. So what is it that the psalmist wants written down? Here's what it is. That God looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and to set those free who were doomed to die. That's exactly what happens in this story. God looks down from heaven on a lonely mountaintop and he hears the groan of a man enslaved by Satan himself, by, by the powers of evil. And he sends his son from heaven to come down to earth and then he sends his son across the sea and through a storm in order to get to this man so that he can set free somebody that was doomed to die. Verse 6 through 8 says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of God? I adjure you by God, or I command you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Notice this man is not asking for Jesus' help. So consumed with this evil spirit, he, he doesn't even have a voice anymore. He's fighting against Jesus. Even though the, he is bowing down before him, he bows because he has to. If you listen to his words, if you hear his tone, you can see antagonism. You can see hate. You can see, what have you to do with me? This man isn't saying, Jesus, please help me. Save me from this evil spirit. No, the, the spirits have so taken over him that they're waging and fighting and letting, know, letting Jesus know their hate for him. In verse 9, Jesus Ask the demon what their name is, and he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now we see that, that, that perhaps thousands of demons have come together in this man, uniting their power so that he has become completely unrestrainable. But even though there's thousands of demons in one Jesus, this text makes it radically clear who's in control. Look at verse 10 through 13. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. A great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirit came out of it and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Now this passage, to tell you the truth, it probably raises a couple of questions, right? Uh, I mean, you read this, you're like, wow, uh, I could definitely ask some questions about it. But, but the truth is that the passage doesn't answer some of the questions that it raises. And given our short time this morning, I want to focus on the questions that the text does make clear. And one of the things this text makes really clear is that Jesus is more powerful than Satan. That he is the most powerful person in this story. They beg Jesus twice in this text. They beg him not to torment them. You see, the more powerful is the one that's able to torment the less powerful, right? The demons have been tormenting this man, but now the tormentors are the ones afraid of being tormented because they realize, well, they are far more powerful than this man. They have nothing on Jesus. They had to ask permission. It's not just that Jesus kicked them out of the man so they had to leave. They had to ask permission to go into pigs. That's the power of your God. Demons have to ask permission 
to go into pigs. There's not a demon in an animal without the permission of our Lord. Not only is Jesus the most powerful person in this story, I want you to notice how Jesus uses his power. He uses his power to rescue someone who had sided with his enemy. This man had chosen his side. He had sided with Satan. This man had given himself over to the power of evil so completely he didn't even have a voice left. It's the demons who are speaking through him. That's why he begs Jesus not to send them into the pigs. It's because the demons are the ones talking. He's lost his voice. He's lost his mind. He's lost, he's barely human, barely recognizable. He's, he's out of his mind. The, the, the townspeople have given up on him. You know what? This man has given up on himself. What do you think he's doing with stones, cutting himself? He's trying to end it. He's trying to be done. He's completely hopeless. There is not a person in the world who has given this man any hope. They've all given up on him, and he's given up on himself. But Jesus comes, and Jesus rescues him. Luther has a quote. I love this quote. He says, the love of God does not first discover, but creates that which is pleasing to him. This passage makes that really clear. You see, a lot of times we're under this illusion that like God looks down for good people to pour his love out. Haven't you ever, whether you say that or not, you've believed it because there's been times where you've been thinking, I better obey God so that I get this, right? Or I want to make sure I do my devotions today because I got an interview later on, right? I mean, we, we, we think God looks down on good people in order to decide who to love and who to help and who to, who to be kind to. But this text makes it really clear when God chose to love this man, he did not do it because this man was beautiful. He didn't do it because there was anything good in this man. There's a thousand really bad things in this man, okay? But he loved him. He didn't love him because he was beautiful. But his love changed him and transformed him. When, what he found in that cemetery wasn't pretty, but what he left there was... What he left there was a man in his right mind. A disciple. That's the love of our God. Mark goes on to tell us that the herdsmen who had just watched the 2,000 pigs run off the sides of the cliff. Well, one more thing. In case I wasn't clear enough earlier about what sin and evil wants to do. What did I say? It wants to set you free from restrictions in order to kill you. That's what it did to this man, right? It made him free of the chains to kill himself on a hill. That's what it was trying to do. What do you think it did to the pigs? It set them free of the pens to die in the sea. 
Those pigs had never been freer than they were when those demons went at them. The herdsmen couldn't contain them. The fences that had been up were trampled. Nothing could stop those pigs. They were free. And they drown in the sea. Because that is exactly what sin wants to do to each of us. Set us free to do what we want so that it can kill us. So the herdsmen go and they tell everybody what just happened to the pigs. And in Mark 5, 15, all the townspeople come back to find out what's going on. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. When the people arrived and saw the man that, that none of them could subdue, the one that they had all been afraid of, when they saw him sitting there, clothed and in his right mind at Jesus' feet, the Bible says they were very afraid. They were afraid because they knew they were confronted face to face with someone who was far more powerful than they were. They were afraid because when they looked at Jesus, you know what he reminded them? He reminded them that they weren't in control. And do you remember what the townspeople do? to things that remind them that they're not in control? They get rid of them. The demon-possessed man reminded them they weren't in control, so he found himself in a cemetery. Jesus reminded these people that he wasn't in control. Look what they do in verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They asked Jesus to leave because they knew that as long as he was there, they wouldn't be able to keep up their illusion of control. Well, not much has changed, has it? Today, you and I are faced with the same choice that these townspeople were faced with. Do we want to live under the illusion of control? Do we want to run our own lives? Do we want to decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong? Or do we want to follow Jesus? This passage, along with many others, makes it really clear. You can't have both. You can have the illusion of control or you can have Jesus, but you can't have both. Now, our culture has sold us because they've given us the illusion of control with the illusion of Jesus. And they've made many people content to think that they can have both. But they're lying, because you can't. You can have the illusion of control. You can't have control, I'm sorry, you can't. But you can have the illusion of control. But you won't be able to have Jesus too. And when you have Jesus, when you have Jesus, you don't even get the illusion of control. When you have Jesus, not my will, but his be done. Now, the, town, now, the, now the, the man who had the demon cast out of him, he, he made a different choice than the townspeople. As Jesus was getting in the boat in verse 18, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So the townspeople think life would be better if they were in control and they decide that they would rather keep maintain the illusion of control than to have Jesus in their lives. So they ask him to leave. 
this man recognizes exactly where control got him. It got him on the side of a mountain in a graveyard, cutting himself with stones. And so he says, I don't want control anymore. You can have it. I just want you. And so he asked Jesus to get in the boat with him. And the question you're faced with this morning is, are you willing to give up control to follow Jesus? Are you willing to give up control to follow Jesus? Or would you rather maintain the illusion of control even if it meant having to let go of Jesus? Make no mistake, that's what this passage is teaching. It's teaching that to follow Jesus, you must be willing to give up control of your life. And in case some of you are on the fence and you're not quite convinced that that's what this passage is teaching, I want to I take you to the next verse. You remember what this man asked Jesus? He asked Jesus if he could go with them. That sound like a bad thing? Sounds like a really good thing, right? Think about it. This guy wants to go with Jesus because Jesus is the only one that, 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 that had hope, that gave him hope. He's the only one that could rescue him. He's, he, he's afraid the demons might come back and he wants to be near Jesus. He doesn't want to have all these reminders of his, of his despicable behavior. Can you imagine going around to the townspeople that had seen him gnarling and, and, and foaming and breaking chains and all the things that he had no doubt done to so many people that he wanted to start new. That's what he wanted. It doesn't sound like that bad of a request, but Jesus has a lesson to teach us here. And so he says in verse 19, and Jesus did not permit him but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he's had mercy on you. Oh, now you see really clearly what's the first lesson of discipleship that Jesus teaches this man? Uh, I'm in control. To be a disciple is to follow me. It doesn't... It means to follow me the way that I lead you and where I call you. It, to be a disciple means you have to let go of control. Once again, this man is faced with the decision. Let go of control of his life and follow Jesus and do what Jesus says. Or, uh, or go like the townspeople. Kierkegaard tells us a story, he imagines, he says, imagine a king came to Jesus at night, just like Nicodemus did, and the king sat down and told Jesus he wanted to be his disciple. He says, I could imagine Jesus saying to the king, listen, if you want to be a king, that's fine. Me and my disciples won't cause any problems. We will be your humble followers. My kingdom is not of this world. You have nothing to fear from me. But if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a disciple, then, oh man, I am the king. So take off your crown and get off your throne and follow me. It's kind of interesting. That's kind of what you see in this story, right? Jesus says yes to demons. And he says yes to townspeople when they ask him for something. Because they're not disciples. 
And he has no problem leaving them in their delusion and illusion of control. But oh man, if you want to be a disciple, then he is the king. So go and tell your friends. Right? He did not permit the one person that actually was following him from his request. It's true. God allows people to live under the illusion of control. Sometimes he even says yes. Sometimes the wicked get what they want. But not for long. The demons got to go into pigs for a moment, but one day they'll be bound in shackles in hell for all eternity. The townspeople may have been deluded to think that life would be better without Jesus, but one day they'll know that that's not true but they'll have to live with their requests forever. And this man is kind of the opposite, right? For a little while, he's got to go and he's got to tell his friends and his neighbors about Jesus and all that he's done while Jesus is away in the boat. But one day soon, Jesus would come back and he would get his request. And he'd get it forever. Because he'd get to be with Jesus. So, in conclusion, I want to look at why this man chose to follow Jesus when the townspeople chose to reject him. Basically, I think you can look at this story, and I think it's really important. I think we just look at it and we say, why does the one make, why does, why does the demon-possessed man submit and give Jesus control when the townspeople won't? And as you listen to these comparison and contrast, you need to be considering your own life. Because I think a lot of, from the outside, most of us look a lot more like the townspeople than we do like this demon-possessed man. So let's, let's try to understand the, the depth of this and let's, let's try to see how, how we really are and let's try to see what would it look like for us to recognize more of ourselves in this demon-possessed man than in the townspeople. First, this man understood the evil that he had committed and the death that he deserved. He knew he was a sinner. He's trying to kill himself. He knows. He knows he doesn't deserve anything. He knows where his control has led him. It has led him to a graveyard, naked, screaming out in pain, cutting himself with stones. That's not all this man knew. This, This man also knew firsthand the amazing grace that Jesus offered. He had experienced his power to save him from the legion of demons that had overcome him. He had experienced the fact that while he was still a sinner, Jesus loved him. Well, tonight I want you to know these same two things that this demon-possessed man realized are just as true of us as they were of him. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul comes and he says, he, he, he says this verse describes how each one of us in this room once was. We were born spiritually dead, dwelling among the tombs, hopeless and helpless, just like this man. Like this man, we were slaves to the prince of the power of the air, the same one who possessed this man. By nature, we were under the same wrath of God that this man was under, deserving the same death and hell that this man deserved. The story of Mark is meant to paint a physical picture that seems really foreign to us because it doesn't look like us, but it's meant to paint a physical picture of the souls that we were born with. Dead. Enslaved. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the same evil force that controlled this man once controlled you? Do you believe that you were headed for the same wrath that this man was headed for? Do you believe that you deserved the same death? Do you believe that you were just as helpless and just as hopeless? Remember how many people in this world were able to help this man? Only Jesus. Do you believe you were just as helpless and just as hopeless as him? Paul says that you should. You should believe that. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul goes on to tell us that this same Jesus that came from heaven to rescue this possessed man has come to rescue you and I. Look at Romans 5, 6-8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this passage, Paul reminds us of the great length that our God went to save us. You see, what the Bible teaches is that, that, that the only way for Jesus to rescue sinners like this demon possessed man and like you and I is to come and to take their place. That's why the book of Mark doesn't end with Jesus coming and finding this man naked on a mountainside wandering in the tombs, cutting himself with stones and screaming out. It doesn't end with him saving him, casting the demon out and then ascending into heaven. No. Well, it doesn't end like that because in order to save this man, Jesus would have to take his place. That's why if you read a little further on in the book of Mark, you'll find that soon it's Jesus' body that's torn into shreds with little stones. Stones that were weaving into the whip of the Roman soldiers. If you look ahead a little bit, you'll find that it's Jesus on the side of a mountain hanging naked crying out in agony. 
If you read just a little further, you'll find that it's Jesus not walking among the tombs, but it's Jesus' limp body being laid in a tomb. In order to save this man, Jesus had to take his place. Here's the question for you tonight. Do you believe that Jesus is terrible, painful, agonizing? Death on the cross was only for this man? Or do you believe it was for you as well? If you believe it was for you, that means you have to acknowledge that that's what you deserve. If you believe that that death wasn't just for this demon-possessed man who had given himself over to the powers of evil, that death was for you, then you deserved it too. And if you deserved that death, then I know one thing that we don't deserve. And that's control. If our control led us to deserve that death, then not only do we not deserve control, but we ought not to want it. Look where we got ourselves. Why are we so clingy to control when we see where it's taken us in the past? Not only does the cross show us where our control has led us and what we deserve, the cross also shows us that there is one who loved us enough to take our place. We ate all the food and he came to pay the bill. And what that ought to teach you, when you believe that Jesus gave his life on the cross for you, what that ought to teach you is that he is worthy of control. Here is one you can give control to because he loves you. He's shown you how much he loves you by giving his life on the cross. You can give him control. You'll never find another person who loves you more. And he is stronger. You see, the problem with our illusion of control is that it only works for a few things, and then we have to distract ourselves from so many others. But Jesus is stronger than all the things that we distract ourselves from. All the things we're anxious about, worried about, afraid of. Stronger even than death. He rose again from the dead, proving that he is stronger so you can give him control of your life. Amen? And if you give him control of your life, what you will find is he will say to you the same thing that he said to this man. He will say, go home. Go to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's where Jesus sends us after he saves us. 
He sends us home to tell our friends, to tell our family, to tell our loved ones, to tell our co-workers, to tell our neighbors how much he's done for us. That's why we need this story. This story reminds us. It's easy to forget how much he's done for us, but this story reminds us. And when we remember, then we have a story to tell. Because he's done a lot for us, hasn't he? I was thinking about this last night. I'll leave you with this. But our culture is full of evangelists telling you what joy sin can bring you. And they do it boldly. And they do it without shame. And they do it courageously. And they, they have no problem with it. If people can boldly tell you about the pleasures of sin, even though they will lead you to death and hell, if people have that kind of nerve, that kind of courage, how much more ought we to be courageous and bold about telling people of the one that can give them eternal life? of the one that can give them true freedom, as the one who will never leave them or forsake them. In other words, the world is full of evangelists. Everywhere you go, people are selling you something. We have what people need, and yet we're often so timid to tell them. Well, if they can tell you how amazing sin is, You and I ought to be able to tell them how amazing Jesus is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, this story reminds us, it gives us this physical picture of all that you saved us from. And so we just say thank you. God, if you were to remove yourself from our life, we would end our days like this man. So thank you. Thank you that you looked down from heaven. Thank you that you saw us. Thank you that you heard our groans. Thank you that you came to free us from our slavery and our prisons and that you came to, to save those who were doomed to death. Thank you for saving us. Thank you that you did it even when we were sinners, when we were ugly, when we didn't deserve it, when we had chosen foolishly to take the side of your enemy who was condemned to lose. You didn't just make us lose with him, but you came and you rescued us and you took us off of his team and you brought us onto your team, the team that wins. And you've given us life from death, freedom from slavery, love from hate, peace from anxiety. You've taken us out, out of the mire and put us on a rock. Thank you. God, you've done all that in our past, so why would we doubt you for our future? God, would you please, please help us to trust you. Help us to trust you when it's hard. Help us to trust you when we say, Jesus, can we go with you? And you say, 
this is where I'm leading you. When we say, God, I want to serve you this way, and you say, this is where I'm calling you. God, your yeses and your noes are both as full of love. They're both full of love. All your ways towards us are steadfast love and faithfulness. Even when we don't see it, the God who gave his life on the cross to save us loves us, and he will lead us safely home. So help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.